Greetings everyone and welcome back to another episode of Plan B Success. We have a very fascinating personality that we want to interview today, Steve Eggleston, or the Eggman at a point in time in his life. He's been an attorney, a lawyer by profession, he's been a rock star over the weekends, you know, putting on his earrings, his tattoos, exposing his tattoos, and actually playing to bands and music out there. He's been in Las Vegas, Hollywood, rubbed shoulders with the who's who in the entertainment industry, has written movie scripts, has written several books as a ghostwriter, I believe over a dozen plus throughout his life, and now he's a full-time ghostwriter. That's what he does for a living, and he's stationed in UK at this point, but he keeps shuttling between the UK and the US in Virginia Falls Church. So welcome, Steve. Thanks for having me. Sounds very exciting. Yeah, really glad to have you on the show today. You've had a fascinating life. I was looking through your website and there's so much that you've done on the either extremes, you know, the logical stuff, being a lawyer, attorney, the creative stuff, actually writing and playing music. You've kind of touched on both ends of the sphere there. So why don't you, in your own words, walk through your life? Tell us what it was all about. Wow. Um, when people ask me where I'm from, I always lie. Because if I actually answer the question, it's so long that uh, many people would prefer just to walk away. So I always say I'm from uh, I'm from Kentucky because my mom and my dad and my grandparents were all born or lived most of their lives in a little town called Ashland, Kentucky. But in fact, I am not from Ashland, Kentucky because my dad, uh, he played uh, basketball and got a scholarship to the University of Florida out of high school and was recruited there into the Air Force Academy. Back in 1951 or two, when uh, when when becoming a pilot was sort of becoming a rock star, that was the way the world looked at it. I I think he looked at it that way, certainly as a guy from the South. So he ended up going to the Air Force Academy and graduated in the first F-100 fighter pilot uh, pilot class. Well, so that got him stationed when he finished. In Homestead, uh, Florida, which is right at the tip of Florida, about, you can almost hit a baseball to Cuba. And that's where I was born, at Homestead Air Force Base in, in 1956, quite a long ways ago. So when people ask me where I'm from, it's like, I only, I, I was on, I was, we, there, we were there for three months until we moved, and we moved all over the place. And I certainly don't have any deep roots in Miami uh, or in that area, which is where Homestead is. But we did end up uh, in Westover Air Force Base, and it sort of defined me in a way uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Quite a very interesting time. My dad being a B-52 pilot, there's a great story I have, and it's, it's worth sharing because it just says how, how it gives perspective to the craziness of the world today. So here I am. Uh, it's night. I'm in first grade. I think I might have been second. I'm six or seven years old, and uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis is in the news. That's back when they had three stations: CBS, ABC, NBC, and then they had the national. They had the Air Force broadcasting, but that was just Air Force news. And uh, what was in the news was Khrushchev 
was trying to put missiles on Cuba. And if he did that, then all it would take is the push of a button, and one minute later, the, the White House could be destroyed, if in fact it ever came to that. So John Kennedy had been elected president, and he ran into and encountered that thing right away. And so what they would do on the military base on Westover, which is right outside of Boston, is uh, about three in the morning, these alarms would all go off. You lived in four plexus, and my dad and many other men would jump out of bed, pull on these orange jumpsuits that made them look almost like aliens from Men in Black, grab these big helmets that probably, if you dropped it on your toe as a kid, I mean, truly send you to the hospital, and raced to their cars. And so all the families would come in behind them, and they'd stand in the front yard, and there you would be at 3, 4 in the morning, and there'd be a 100 people standing out in all these yards, and all these men in orange jumpsuits running to their cars. And for the next hour, these planes would take off and then come back 24 hours later, or 48, TDY is what they called it. So my sort of life was defined by moving a lot and all this crazy stuff happening in the middle of the night. I guess that prepared me for the rest. I ended up, after living in 15, 20 places, graduating from the University of Maryland. I went to three universities. And it was sort of an interesting story there, too, because when I was in school, I would spend one evening or one day, typically, working with Ralph Nader who was the big consumer uh, back. He had just written a book, uh, Unsafe at Any Speed, about the Corvair. If you took it too fast around, around a corner, it could flip. Uh, so I'd spend some time with Ralph. They called it Mary Bird, Maryland Public Interest Research Group. He planted those groups in all the universities. And then the other night, or another night, I would go to the Cato Institute, a very conservative think tank, very libertarian, and I saw and got to meet Ayn Rand, the legendary Ayn Rand, who wrote The Fountainhead and, well, We the Living, The Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, and the Star of the Objectivist Movement. So here I was one day listening to Ralph Nader, who was very much, in her mind, a left-wing socialist, and Ayn Rand, who really wasn't a right-wing person. She was a libertarian. She didn't like either party, frankly. Uh, and it was quite interesting. I met Nathaniel Brandon back at the time. Uh, I don't know if I met Leonard Peikoff. I suspect that he was there, but I didn't know who he was at the time. And then Alan Greenspan came down a couple of times, and Nathaniel Brandon, all these people. So I got, like, two different sides of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I spun from that into law school. But I had a choice. I could either go to law school or I could go play in a rock and roll band down in Florida where I had gone to high school. <laughs> so I picked law school, and it was only because I thought there was surfing on the west coast of California, and in fact there wasn't. There's no surfing. Well, you could surf, but it's so darn cold, and there's a lot of white sharks out there, and there's really no advantage to getting eaten alive while freezing. So I graduated from law school valedictorian in 1982 and went on to become a, a trial lawyer. Uh, conservative. I had the oh, second year of law school. I had I'm for well, no, second month of law school. I had hair down to my back. Dean pulls me over and says, uh, "No, wait a minute. Second semester. I had just started typing my exams. The one thing I learned, by the way, a lesson to learn: always pick a tool that helps you in life. It it's, can be accidental. In high school, while all the guys took uh, took wood shop, I, there was this girl I was fond of." And I wanted her to come out and just, so she took typing. So I, there I am in a class of 50 wet girls, mm -hmm. me and my buddy, 
and I learned how to type. So when I got to law school, three people typed in a class of 100. And I did okay the first semester, C's, which most of the people do in law school. 90% of the people get C's. It's, there's mm -hmm. no bell curve. It's 90%. Mm -hmm. uh, so it might be a C plus. And then my, my stepfather said, you know, Steve, I have an IBM Selectric. If it would help you, take it. Uh, and uh, maybe, you know, maybe it, you can type, you can do more of these exams because you have a very specific time period to answer these questions. And so I did. And before the year was up, my pages went from three blue books that nobody could read to five to seven, six, seven pages of typing. And I was number one in the class and remained there. So the dean, when I got, when I did my first typing exams and was got the top grades in almost all my courses, pulls me aside and says, uh, Steve, he was the torts teachers where he says, Steve, the hair's got to go. <laughs> You're not going to get. You're not going to get a job clerking for any law firm in Sacramento, the capital of California, with that hair. It's just not going to happen. So the hardest thing I ever did, really, was cut that hair because it's like it's a, it's a, it was a crutch for me. I think as well. I don't know, and I couldn't even face myself in the mirror for 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 weeks following. I was embarrassed to have my hair cut. That was so weird. Uh, but anyway, so there it, it was, and then I graduated from law school in 1982, and, and I got got it back then. By the way, today it's so easy to apply for a job; you can apply for anything. Back then, you had to take out a big, thick book called Martindale Hubble from the law library. You couldn't check it out; you couldn't move it from the library. You said you could just use it on the reference desk, and you you would go through it, and they would organize law firms by city. So you would open it up and you would write down on a piece of paper. You really couldn't photocopy this big thing. Mm -hmm. And it just didn't work. And it would probably break the glass if you did it. There is, so you'd write all these things down. And then you would type out your letter, get your references, and you would physically send these letters out to the different law firms in, in town uh, to, to get a job. And uh, that's what I did. I did do that. And, uh, uh, and I was very fortunate to, to get a great job working for a firm that paid me $22,000 a year. <laughs> I mean, it barely minimum wage, but when I passed the book bar later in the year, uh, it bumped up, I don't know, $30,000 or something like that. Uh, and, I, and I went to work for a business and tax firm. Uh, it's just a crazy thing. So many stories along the way, but I became a trial lawyer. I did a lot of civil rights work. I did a lot of business litigation where I would represent a company suing somebody else, usually a bigger company, on a contingency fee basis, which was sort of rare. You usually didn't. You saw that in personal injury, but not mm -hmm. that. But I also got into personal injury. I went to a course taught by Melvin Belli, the great Melvin Belli, one of the great attorneys at the time in San Francisco. And of all things, he cut open. This was a Friday night. You and I drove from Sacramento to San Francisco, and it was a cadaver. You're going to practice personal injury because he was Mr. Demonster of Evidence. <laughs> you needed to know. So he took this man, he stuck on this slab, and he ran that knife right down himself. And it was just incredibly gruesome. And the smell and people, women, a few of them, and a couple of people, well, just not, it'd be unfair to say that. I'd say men and women alike, just there were a few people that either got sick or that were near fainting. But you learned a lot about the human body. It taught me how important it is to get your hands dirty, as it were, about something. We were speaking about that 
before coming on about sales and direct mm-hmm. sales. And you don't do it yourself. You really don't know what it's like. Right. So, uh, and then uh, I married a lady whose father was a judge. And she uh, and he and he had a book opportunity come to him, but he was so a retired judge, so busy. David O'Brien, an Irishman, absolutely lovely guy, so busy with his own stuff that he couldn't do the book, and he gave it to us. So I was I was a few years ahead, and so uh, I started. I wrote this book on California employment law uh, with my ex-wife at the time. She wasn't my wife actually, but uh, and that got me writing books. The labor and employment in California, it's not, of no importance now, even though it's still sold 30 some years later. It's updated every year by her <laughs> now. And uh, so it, it got me thinking about the books. But my, my life back then uh, was uh, was really about trying lawsuits. And, 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 and then when I got divorced, I said, I got to get out of town and I moved to San Francisco. And the moment I did that, I moved into theater representing music artists, uh, doing, uh, I went to a class on writing scripts, a fellow by the name of James D'Alessandro was one of the great screenwriting instructors in San Francisco. We became pals, and I had a house in Sausalito, and he took his class and actually brought it out to my house because it was on the cliffs, and he could like, look at the world, he called it the fallen star, and he loved to bring his students there. So he, he came out, and through that, I met a guy who became my best friend uh, at the time, best older friend, uh, Paul Arito. He had produced in 77 a $60 million motion picture, the biggest budgeted movie in the history of motion pictures, I believe, called Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, and, and so he was suing, he needed somebody to represent him uh, against Sony Pictures in Columbia, these massive companies on the television rights to Sheena and Queen of the Jungle. Uh, and uh, we ended up suing all of them, plus the guys uh, who, <laughs> David Schwartz, who created Baywatch because he stole the idea from Paul, according to Paul. Mm-hmm. That got me to leave the practice of law eventually and move to Hollywood, where I went to work for a company called One Roof Entertainment. We were at the L.A. Center Studio, and what we really did was support big pictures that where there wasn't sufficient studio space at the studios, because they would fill them up, and so they would come down to, to our sound studios, and we would do everything uh, to help them get done what needed to be done. And one was the idea, so anything these big productions needed, we would take care of it. Uh, and then I got, and then I had an opportunity to run a rock and roll magazine. In Las Vegas, and I uh, I took it, uh, and I went there, and, and also was managing Steve Thompson back at the time. He's seven Grammys. He he mixed Appetite for Destruction for Guns and Roses back in the day, and didn't win a Grammy for that. 150 diamond, platinum, and gold records this guy had eventually. An amazing guy. And then I managed Michael Graham, who won America's Got Talent in 2010, and became the booking agent. Booked about a thousand shows between all these guys. And in the process of doing all of this, all the way back to Hollywood, I was doing scripts. And I created this one story uh, about a crazy character by the name of Trip Splatter. And Trip Splatter ultimately became a book that really launched my, my career in the fiction area called Conflicted. 
Mm-hmm. This book right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, a re-release copy with the bar still on it. And I was very fortunate because I'll tell you what. When you're coming up with a new book and you're not a known author in the world of this stuff, right? This is a crime thriller. You don't know what might, you know, how, how do you, I had a great agent introduced to me through Paul and, and James D'Alessandro by the name of Peter Miller. Incredible guy. But Peter was busy. He was getting knighted in Italy or something like that and just couldn't really be bothered to help me find reviews for my book. So I actually contacted people directly off their Facebook pages. And I found a guy who then I think had 15 New York Times bestsellers, who was third or fourth, maybe even second to John Grisham in the uh, legal thriller field caught by the name of John LaScraw. And he is now an 18 times or 19 times bestseller. But he gave me the most amazing A. He said, Peter Miller, oh, God, I'll do anything for Peter. And uh, so I sent him the book, and he gave me this incredible review. And it sort of launched my career. It did take a lot of work to do this book because I had written it as a script first. And mm-hmm. Paul Erickson, though, the one uh, saying, said, Stevie, put down that script. Only about 100 movies are made a year. And <laughs> there's a lot of people in front of you. A lot of people write a book. And I did. And it really changed my life. So from then until now, huge number of stories. I'm now in England, married to a lovely lady I met 20 years ago at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, she's a British lady. Uh, and, she, and so we live here in Somerset, go back and forth. Uh, but I write full time and we call it ghostwriting. Right? That's what, but the truth is, is that I'm not a ghostwriter on any of these books. Because if I was a ghostwriter, I couldn't show you the books. That's true. Because you sign an NDA, and when you're truly a ghostwriter, no one knows you're on the book. Today, very often, you're a with writer or an and writer. So for Mafia, Stephen John, and you just you're you're with somebody. So they'll come to you. They have a story, a book in mind, whatever. Could be an they could have written something. They might just have a notion. And I take that and turn it into a publishable book. Very often these books today are not, are, are, don't go with big publishers or traditional. People don't want to do that. They want to use them for, for whatever they want. Uh, could be for credentials, could be for, uh, for their family, for a legacy, could be to create a brand, it could be to create an authority. I tell businesses, I said, if you don't have a book about your business, you don't have a business plan. Because until you write a book, you really don't know what your business is about. It used to be about business plans. I've done a ton of them. They don't say crap. You read somebody's business plan, you're lucky to know what the heck it says. Truly. If you really want to understand somebody's business, read a book about the business and the inspiration behind it. Rather than wait until the person who sold the business and done whatever he's done or she, write it towards the beginning if you've got the buy and treat it as a piece of marketing. It's a piece of branding, and that's, that's my pitch. I'm sticking with it. So uh, I turn the mic over to you because I only have, uh, there's only so much oxygen in England, and I've used about 90% of it. Sure, not a problem at all. That, that's great. You know, it's, it's great to hear your story uh, from your own perspective and, you know, the, the flow and ebb of things as they progressed. Now, at a point in time, you also produced a movie, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I was involved in quite a few movies over the years, but one of them that was in particular quite, quite fun 
was uh, a, bo- a movie called uh, 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 Midsummer Night's Rave. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one. And Midsummer Night's Rave. I was in I was in West Hollywood at the time. Uh, uh, COO of One Roof Entertainment, and a guy by the name of Gil Cates was was uh, friends with somebody else at One Roof. Gil uh, Gil Cates Jr. C A T E S is Phoebe Cates' cousin, I think, whatever the actress. But his father, more importantly, was the head of the uh, DGA, the Directors Guild of America, and also the producer of the Academy Awards year in and year out. So he contacts this fellow who contact who looks to me and says, Steve, you know a lot of people with money and things like that. He needs the final 25% or whatever uh, on this this rave movie uh, amidst the, combining the, the, the Shakespearean book with that. And, uh, and I say, well, let me call my pal Peter Rafelson. Peter Rafelson's father, Bob. Created the Monkees, uh, got an Academy Award directing Five Easy Pieces. That was his first movie. Produced Easy Rider. Hollywood legend. Lived about a block from Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty on Coldwater Canyon. So I I got to meet Peter through through Paul Arato, and he and I were pals. So we got together, and, and he was a he was a music producer. I think he wrote Open Your Heart to Madonna. And he was a filmmaker too. He knew people, as many or more than I did. So we combined, and we came up with the idea that we would approach a guy by the name of uh, uh, Sam, uh, what was Sam's last name? Oh, Sammy Boy. Sam, Sam Nazarian at Sammy Boy Entertainment, and he was trying to make a big, he was a very wealthy guy. Bottom line is, they were doing a film, the state of Louisiana was just starting their their. their Film fund, and even though nothing about this movie was to be shot in Louisiana, somehow Sam was able to get the financing from there. That got the financing to us, and we got the financing for the picture. Peter ended up doing the sound, I think, and music for it, and I got an executive producer credit along with my sister and my girlfriend at the time. And uh, in fact, my girlfriend at the time leads to another story. You mentioned the Eggman. Mm-hmm. My girlfriend. Donna, uh, 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 let's leave her name. Who <laughs> was best friends with Lee Starkey? Lee Starkey is Ringo's daughter. Mm-hmm. Ringo's true last name is Starkey. So we were we were in Hollywood, West Hollywood, and she came into town, uh, and her her brother played drums for the Who, and so uh, they were in town to, to on their uh, it was their, the tour when John Entwistle actually. Uh, died in Las Vegas, but this is before they had started, they just arrived, and so she called uh, Don as her first name, and we went over to visit Ringo and his wife, Margaret, and I had never met them, uh, and they lived, they had a house in uh, Beverly Hills, big Mm -hmm. gated thing, and we went over there, walk in the front door, and uh, there's a cardboard cutout of Ringo, which is Life size, about five foot five. Uh, I mean, about and life size, but even though he's about five five, it's about six five. It's a big, big cutout. You walk into the living room, it's this massive cutout. It's a cardboard cutout. Then Ringo and Margaret come around the corner, and he's about half the size of his cutout. It's just a 
funniest thing. So uh, I got to meet him there, and the guys went out on the porch in the back and talked to the pool. And I, and, you know, what do you say? I mean, to Ringo Starr, what do you say? And I, she said, well, finally, I said, what is your name? I think it was Eggle. You know? So I said, yeah, Steve Eggleston. He says, you should call yourself the Eggman. Of course, the Beatles have the song, I am the Eggman, you are the walrus. And on my email, you will see Paul uh, Shortino, who was the singer for Quiet Riot, and who was one of the singers at Rock Gods, uh, the Rock Gods show in Las Vegas, did me, uh, did us, did a, I am the Eggman piece. I mean, it's a little signature goes with my email whenever I send it. So that's where I got that, and I used it when I was running the Rock Magazine and managing all these people. I would be the Eggman. So even today, my Facebook is the Eggman 411, 411 being information. So if you needed any information, you would call the Eggman. And I had a little thing, a little logo that said the Eggman, he's everywhere. So that was sort of my thing. It's not a moneymaker, by the way, to be everywhere and to have anybody who has a question get a hold of you. So I would not advise anything like that to anybody unless they're being paid by someone else to do that. You're doing it yourself. You've got no time to make any money. You can't get the bills paid. So it's a it's a very uh, conflicting uh, title to have. But uh, so that's that's the movie business. Interesting business. I'll answer. I'll, I'll go into it a little bit more because I'm doing a movie now uh, on a book I'm writing about an injustice that occurred in New Zealand, and uh, I'm doing it with Mark Brown. I met Martin back when my wife and I first met, now wife, uh, 20 years ago. And Martin had just uh, won or not been nominated for an Academy Award for Moulin Rouge. And his partner was Baz Luhrmann, Baz, the great Baz Luhrmann, one of the great geniuses and creatives in the world. And they had done Strictly Ballroom together and a few others, uh, both Australian. And uh, somebody had said, hey, Steve might be able to help you get some money. So I had met him in, in, in Los Angeles the same way. But uh, he got he got nominated as producer to watch. It's a list of like 10 mm-hmm. hot producers, you know, coming up in Variety and the Hollywood Reporter. So I, 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 I had met Donna at the music, uh, my wife at a music festival uh, in January at Cannes. And I said, we, we were thinking about getting married at the time, even though I practiced law in, in California, and she uh, uh, did PR for Simple Minds and some other bands and things like that out of London. So, uh, so, but I contacted her, so we all met in London. Uh, Martin flew in from Sydney, I flew in from, uh, from California, and we all went to the Cannes Film Festival together, so I got to meet everybody through Martin. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Martin was like our entree into all of these great parties because he was nominated for an Academy Award. They wouldn't have let me in anything. I might have let Donna in, but I was very lucky to tag along. And uh, so uh, through through my relationship with him, now 20 years later, we're doing a movie together, Martin and I and Donna. So that's awesome. very exciting. Awesome. So the, the business is a fascinating one, this, uh, the, the film business, but you must... Be very careful how you how you position yourself in it. Uh, just like music, spend a lot of money and, and get no return. So you know, coming back to ghostwriting, what what does that what does that process look like? You know, for somebody who's trying to understand the process, could you explain it? Ghostwriting is basically collaborative writing. So let's if you mm-hmm. wanted a book. 
uh, you would be, in, in my world, the subject author. It, it's your book. You're going to own the book at the end. But you have a busy life, and you've never written a book before. Or you've written a book or been involved in the writing of a book, but there's no way you can put the hundreds of hours that's required into the book. So you want to hire somebody uh, as a work-for-hire to do the book. Work-for-hire means under the copyright law that at the end, you own the book. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you go, you know, today you Google. There was a time when you didn't have Google, but today you Google and you come up with choices of copyright of, of, of authors who will actually write your book for you. And if they truly are a ghostwriter, their name will not appear on the book. Now, what the process is very simple today. It's an, it's a great. I mean, we have so many incredible tools. You you, you meet. Well, in my in my world, you send me a contact form. Contact form is just a sheet of paper that says, "Hey, this is what I'm interested in." So we'll get it right off my website, and uh, but I get that. I look at that, and then we have a conversation on Zoom, uh, just exactly what we're doing right now, and you get you know make sure that <laughs> that there's a real person on the other side. They get to see who I am. I used to try to hide who I was because when I was a lawyer, I couldn't let them see what you now would see on this, you know, sort of the rock and roll crazy look because, it, you know, people were so conservative and they didn't want you to be that way. Finally, I just had to own it. This is who I am. You look at my website, you see this is what you're going to get <laughs> if you want to have me write your book. Uh, but I've got a lot of life experience. And if you're an outlier, if you're a person who's not like, total establishment, uh, very often, you might tend to go with me just because I'm sort of that person and I'll understand what you're talking about maybe more than somebody else. Who knows? Uh, and uh, you sign a contract and it says this is for X dollars. This is what you're going to get. And then uh, then you typically what you would do uh, is I would help you create an outline, not a very detailed one, just an outline. Then we would do uh, uh, interviews on each chapter. Mm-hmm. The chapter, if it was a memoir or something like that, we would just do it more or less chronologically. If it had subjects involved, we would develop it a little more. And I use today the Timmy app. It's an absolute game changer in the world of writing, collaborative writing. T-E-M-I, it's a free download. Uh, and uh, you basically just turn it on. It records what you're talking about. And if you slow down and spell a few things, it gets it pretty well because it also transcribes it. Wow. So then you get an email, and for like 10 bucks an hour of stuff, you get an email that has an audio play player mm-hmm. and all the stuff transcribed. And you can play it and listen back or do what I do. I don't ever listen to it again because I was there when it happened, unless my wife, who does a lot of interviewing, or somebody else does. I might listen occasionally. But the problem with listening is it's, it's in real time. You can't just find something, but it's all written out. I download it into a Word document, do a little bit of tweaking in terms of font and spacing, and I copy and paste it under chapter one of their book. And I do the same thing with the whole book. And I've written many books where I interviewed the client three, four days, two days, either in person using the Timmy app or on Zoom, depending on the situation. Then I combine that. I always ask people to give me a list of all the names, their basic relationships to anything, give me an outline of the dates, and then I start to work one chapter at a time, rough draft, send it to you, you look at it, we send it back. It's never finished at the beginning. It's just a holding because you just don't know. It's just, it's art. 
mm-hmm. go through the whole book. Usually takes four, five, six months. Can take up to two years. It just depends. In the end, you have a rough draft of the book. You're reading that book for two reasons, and you're reading it for, for story. Will somebody read this thing, or will they fall asleep or be bored? And then you're reading it for factual accuracy, if it's a if it's a nonfiction book, or for whatever, if, you know, just for a character development, and so forth. And by the time you're done, you've got yourself a book. Awesome. And there it is. Really much easier said than done, but at least it's uh, something you can visualize. So now, do you also help with uh, other aspects of uh, book publishing, like finding an agent or a publisher, marketing, or any of those kinds of things? Don't uh, help people get an agent. Okay. I'll, I'll do the book so that the book is agent-ready so they can submit it, but I don't do that. Okay. Uh, it's just a, a long, difficult process, and I don't, I, you know, frankly, what, what's an agent I mean, if you don't have an agent already, you know, you, it's going to take you six months to a year to get one. You're not going to just get one off the submission of a book. John Grisham, I think it took him two years to get an agent. And he was almost dropped after a time to kill because he couldn't sell the book. Nobody wanted it. Of course, then it later sold seven million copies. So it's a tough world out there. The competition is massive because it's a tough world out there. People don't, I have people writing for my agency, the Eggman Global Agency, who are completely ghosts, and no one will ever know they worked on a book, who are best-selling New York Times authors and so forth, but they don't make enough money on the sale of their books to live the life that they want to live. So they supplement with ghostwriting for someone who's going to use a book in a different capacity, where that book will pay for itself with two two clients. You know? So right. if you wanted to write a book and you're in the real estate business and the book was to make you an expert in real estate, you don't need to sell 10 copies. If five people come in and get involved in buying homes or doing projects with you, you paid for your book. So a lot of people just do it for that reason. And then use it as a sort of, hey, bring me in, I'll talk about myself, my book, and my company kind of thing uh, and how to do stuff. But uh, uh, yeah, so that that means so the process is a, is an interesting one. And then, you know, you've written movie scripts as well as books. So, okay. what's the difference between the two? Well, big difference. Uh, a movie script is 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 uh, it's it's a uh, the purpose of a movie script is to create uh, a visual that will uh, present a story in ninety minutes to. A uh, hundred minutes, say, where it might end up hour and a half to two hours, mm-hmm. and the script is basically a minute a page, a hundred hundred pages typical, uh, it, and these are double spaced, and there's all sorts of visuality and dialogue in these scripts. There's character arc. It's quite a difficult process. Whereas a book is like this is my last book. This is uh, probably ninety thousand words. And uh, if it, it, you could take this book and adapt it to a script, so it would go from ninety thousand words to a third of that, probably. And this, you get, you have a chance in a book to get into the mind of people and what they think and do. Do it, lots of non-visual things can happen in a book. Now, I have to tell you, when I write books, I always think about the movie or the TV show, so I tend to write them very visually. But books do not have to be that way. And many books are not 
potential movies that are like this book. Steve's cooking. A lot, a lot of books are how-to books or things like that. So, but the difference is short and visual versus much longer and introspective, and that, that's really unfair. There's, you could have, you could flip them around and take a Andy Kaufman movie. So sorry. This is a book client. <laughs> guy by the name of Mark. I'm going to give his last name. We're doing a book on all the British Wimbledon tennis winners from the beginning of time until now. Awesome. Yeah. So anyway, those are the difference. So if you were looking at a script, it would be on, you know, pay, it would be on paper like this, right? You know, and it would be a hundred pages typically bound, whereas your book. Ends up like this, and there's uh, you know thousands of books released every year, and they all go into different genres. But a, but the purpose of that movie script is ultimately uh, to be able to give the director uh, a, a architectural plan for what the movie will look like, and also to enable somebody to budget the picture because it's organized by scene. It's always interior, exterior. Every single piece of that script is interior, exterior, and so. A production budget person can look at that script and budget the whole film from that. Also, have nothing to do with budgeting in right. that regard. Right. And where do people find you? You know, those that want to check out your services. Well, if you just Google my name, Steve Eggleston, writer, you'll probably come up with ten thousand links. And if my SEO guy is doing it right, which he does because he's phenomenal, my website will be at the top or close to the top. Steve Eggleston, my name. Uh, E-G-G-L-E-S-T-O-N is the last name, writes, W-R-I-T-E-S dot com. And then all my social media and everything, you'll find it. I have you know, just got tons of links up there, but that's how you would. And then if you go there, my email address is there, and my contact sheets are there and all that. So if you can't find me, you're in Antarctica without <laughs> the internet. <laughs> Awesome, Steve. You're a fascinating personality, and it's been a pleasure talking to you today about your life, your times, and then the work that you're doing currently. Before I let you go, one takeaway for the listeners that you'd like to share. Now, that's you know I should have thought more carefully about that, but when you started, because because where would you go with the focus, depending on what you do? My 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 one takeaway would be. If it's to make, if it's to be successful as an artist, do what you always hear, which is to go with your passion. And today, that means to really dig into what it is that you're trying to learn, because there you there are all you can access the masters and all the great people that are out there, and you can learn the style. You can do it. You can read the books, watch the movies. Get the courses. There's all sorts of stuff out there. You can become a master of your own artistic desire or business desire using Google and the Internet today. That's my takeaway. Thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. I hope you liked that episode and are enjoying all the episodes in Plan B Success Podcast. I'd encourage you to go subscribe on your favorite platform whether it's any listening platform or YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so that you enjoy this content and extract from it what serves you best, what benefits you in your own life, personal, professional, business, whatever it might be.
planb.live is the website where you can go in order to find any episode that you would like to listen to. Three times a week, we release episodes, the first being an inspiring interview with someone who's done it, been there, done that, and can inspire you to go after what you want to achieve. Every Monday, that's the episode that gets released. And then, on Wednesdays and Fridays, we pick a topic and we talk about it in order to benefit you in your personal and professional life. At the same time, if you're someone who's interested in learning more about these concepts, if you're someone who's interested in podcasting as well, go check out planbsuccessschool.thinkific.com. That's where all the online courses are. You can learn and benefit from them there as well. There's a bunch of free courses. There's a bunch of paid courses. Start with the free ones. Get to learn what you aspire to learn. And if you want to delve deeper, then you can sign up for the other ones. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.